Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers for DC. Welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. We're recording this live from Hong Kong. This is Arun Sudhaman, editor of The Homes Report. Uh, before we get started, uh, I just want to give a big shout to our sponsor, March, uh, for partnering with us. And of course, to our production partner, Marketeers. We're joined today by Alan Vandermolen, longtime friend of the Homes Report. But this is your first appearance in the Echo Chamber podcast. It is. So welcome. Thank you. I feel, I don't know, virginal. Okay. It's well. That's um, that's a good way to throw me off my stride <laughs> early into the early into the recording process. Excellent. That's not a comment I think we've ever heard uh, in the Echo Chamber podcast, so um, thank you for that. We are post Into Summit uh, and post Sabre Awards yesterday, so I am tired. You had a, a good session, I thought, yesterday. It was fun. It, it was a lot of fun. I think that uh, the future-facing content of yesterday's conference yeah. was incredible. Yeah, it really struck me. Um we do the Innovation Summit in various markets around the world. So the US, um, Europe this year, we did Berlin, you were there. Uh, we, we did a, a conference uh, in South Africa. We did Brazil last year. Uh, and, and we've done it in Asia now for four years. And it really struck me yesterday the how advanced, not all, I guess, but some of the public relations work in this region is. Yeah, I mean, look, I. I'm just I'm fresh off a conference in uh, India last week, mm-hmm. and uh, the Praxis conference in India, and Amit and his crew I think do a terrific job yeah, there. Yeah, sure, we're partners. Um, well. And they they talked a lot about reputation, and you know I, I think only one meaningful technology um, underpinning kind of the modern practice of public relations, as opposed to yesterday here. Um, which I think was dominated by technology and the role of technology has in modern public relations and modern communication. And I think what really struck me was um, all the innovation happening in China on the mm. client side and the agency side. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I, I suppose at these types of conferences, you see the best of what's going on. And my question is, how, how representative is it truly of everything that's going on, do you think? Well, the, the one client example that stood out for me was Procter & Gamble and Crest mm-hmm. and how they're really looking at social buying platforms and embedding their content into social buying platforms. And I think that is is representative of leading brands and what leading brands are doing in China. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to a pal of mine, Vincent Lee, who runs content, digital content for um, Dow Chemical across the region. Yeah. Guy I used to work with in China. And, and he told me that increasingly both marketers and communicators on the client side are measuring the effectiveness of individual pieces of content and those pieces of content ultimately linking to purchase platforms right. in China. Yeah. And, you know, I think we, we're seeing a glimpse of the future mm-hmm. when it comes to content marketing related to PR. Yeah. And that, I guess, has always been the opportunity with platforms like WeChat that you could go from content to commerce we don't see it so much in western markets you don't i mean i i think you're not seeing a lot of linkage across platforms outside of well i think we see it in china i think you see it a little bit in korea hmm. um i think you see it sporadically in the u.s um depending on category in particular in, in retail or modern retail mm-hmm. um but I think you don't see it as much. And I think you don't see it as much because, you know, in China you have the ubiquity of WeChat and the mm-hmm. ubiquity of Alibaba. And both of those have payment platforms in them now. So you've got brands from yeah. all over the world, not just Chinese brands, but brands from all over the world doing market access into China mm-hmm. on those platforms, which is forcing marketing communicators to innovate in content to link in there. So yeah. I think there is a, a unique dynamic in the China market, mm-hmm. but I also think as as we look to the future, we're certainly building against that kind of a model, a model where content yeah. serves, has multiple kinds of value and serves multiple kinds of channels 
in his living. Yeah. So I should have actually introduced where you work for and all that. I just assumed everyone knows who you are because of your your level of um, infamy in Infam- the industry. <laughs> Infamy's good. I like that. Um, I, work, I work for We Communications now, which is uh, a leading independent agency, and uh, I think we're roughly number 20 in the league tables, mm-hmm. and uh, we're on a great growth path now and making some great investments mm-hmm. in people and uh, doing some acquisitions, so I'm excited to be here. So you worked in Asia for a long time. You ran, um, you, you were at Burson, and then you ran Edelman's operations here. So you know China pretty well. Yeah. Um, it's not that easy though, right? It's not that easy from what we saw yesterday. It's not as if you can just turn up and plug in and just do this amazing work. It's still a challenging market for international PR firms. Look, it's it it's difficult for all marketing services agencies. And, you know, I think that what strikes me is there's this huge, huge um, difference between the top of the market mm-hmm. and, let's say, the middle of the market when mm-hmm. it comes to client sophistication and agency sophistication. Mm. And I think for the public relations business, by and large, the entry place remains earned media. Mm. Even though clients and agencies know how important social is and how unique the social atmosphere is in China, Mm. I think there is still, you know, a, a dominant part of that market, which is earned media and a dominant part of a purchaser mindset there that is still communicating top-down. Right. So let's give our spokesperson three messages, let's yeah. have the spokesperson talk to the three most important media, mm-hmm. and let's control the message, mm-hmm. instead of really paying attention to the broader media ecosystem, which is huge, despite mm-hmm. the control media. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Yeah. Uh, and the intersection of paid earned own social, experiential, and to a lesser degree in China search mm-hmm. um, is provides great opportunities for brands. We just need um, agencies to build their expertise in multi-platform mm-hmm. and clients to be more like Procter & Gamble and others in wanting to innovate across those platforms. But surely there's every agency Every type of agency is trying to do this, not just public relations agencies. I mean, you, you, would, you would expect a lot of competition. I know one of the themes yesterday was collaboration, but I'm, I'm more cynical. I tend to see it in terms of competition between different types of agencies. Yeah, I mean, look, the only, the only agencies that are collaborating are the holding companies who are beating the heads of their yeah. subsidiaries saying not. you will collaborate. <laughs> and they're not always collaborating. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you look at what Publicis in, in particular is doing, and I think their go-to-market is very smart, and I'm not going to repeat it here. Um, I think their go-to-market is smart, but the way they're forcing that model is they're de-emphasizing their, their brands for a collective publicist play mm-hmm. so they can sell in multiple uh, at multiple points uh, in their clients, yeah. which is what Ogilvy tried to do. Um, they would I, say, this is what clients want. And clients have been, especially a client like P&G, you know, Mark Pritchard has gone on the record and said, how you deliver these services to me is not my problem. I just want all these services. Um, so... Th- I guess that's their justification for yeah. that kind of model. Look, I, I think that makes sense to a certain point, but I think mm. what you're going to end up with is an army of generalists mm. who are all in this big, mushy pot. And I think that by de-emphasizing great brands in marketing services and by de-emphasizing disciplines, mm. we're going to run into massive commoditization of marketing services, is my okay. view. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think the, the one thing that holds true and that, that where I'm with you is clients want solutions and I had dinner with the CMO of a well-known automotive company in, in New York last mm-hmm. week and um, she said point blank that she wants great insights and deep knowledge of her business and if you have a great insight that you can turn into a piece of creative I don't care where you execute across the marketing services spectrum will give you the permission to play mm-hmm. okay. and I, I think that's interesting and I think that's great for, yeah. for public relations because I, I do believe that marketers need public relations sensibility mm-hmm. to real-time in quotes content and real-time content is multi-platform shareable co-created that really starts neither owned or starts in social but then has value in earned mm. and in paid and I think that 
the public relations sensibility to content and the ability to develop quality editorial mm -hmm. or to find potential quality editorial that already exists in that ecosystem is a sweet spot for us and I, I think it's it's under leveraged and certainly something that we is looking to leverage mm. okay so shots fired at publicists who's next well I'm not sure I'm not I'm just looking at what I think is a shame when you commoditize mm -hmm. um, public relations brands mm. and you know I think that WPP started it when they started to do um, their team-specific approach across disciplines to service uh, clients like Ford. Ford. I think that was probably yeah. one of the one of the first ones. Yeah. And I think it makes sense for them to do that, mm -hmm. best of breed and custom-make teams. But there's no getting around it. Commoditizes their individual brands. So I, you know, is it right or is it wrong? I don't know. But I think it's a commoditization of valuable brands. Hmm. So you've been at We now six months. That's right. And you're you're running um, basically all of their international operations. How do you see the agency market? Because we is is a global agency, and yet it is considerably smaller than, for example, the agency you worked at at before Edelman, which is you know almost a billion dollars. We is um, just around a hundred million. So how how do you play in that global market at that size? Um, look, we've got to compete up and compete down. We need to compete with the holding companies and we need to compete with uh, the boutiques. So as I kind of look at the market, I see the behemoths, which are, if I'm just talking public relations, the behemoths yeah. are people that I think are over 400 million, that have a global footprint and that have a full service offering. Yeah. Then we've got the boutiques, which I think are roughly 75 million and down mm -hmm. and tend to play in um, fewer markets and tend to have a more niche offering so we focus in on corporate communications let's say or investor relations yeah. or, or stakeholder yeah. and I think the our focus as an agency is we want to leverage our two power sectors globally which are health and tech mm. we want to expand that offer into adjacent areas that make sense for us so mm. let's say Food is an easy extension from that. Automotive is an easy extension from that. Wellness is an easy extension from that. So we want to build those adjacencies out. Mm -hmm. And then we want to really have a much more robust offer that starts with insight mm -hmm. and ends with impact and focuses our craft on planning, creative, and then execution. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're trying to build that consistently from the ground up. And, you know, I think what's interesting for us is as you compete with boutiques and as you compete with behemoths, you are really forced to look at the individual markets mm. and identify your weakest link in critical global markets and build up from there. Mm -hmm. And that gives us an opportunity to build a really bottoms up agency that's sewn together by capability and by sector offer. And I, I think that's unique to, to any of our competitors. Okay. So it's interesting in, in that answer, you didn't mention geography. And I wonder how important that is to everything you're doing. We is, is um, like many agencies, uh, overweight, or overweighted in the US uh, and, and small outside, um, do, do you feel you need to be bigger in particular regions? I think there are five critical markets if you want to be a global player in marketing services. Mm -hmm. um, the United Kingdom, New York, mm -hmm. San Francisco, Silicon Valley, China and India. Mm -hmm. And we have a great footprint in the United States, good share in the United States. We are, um, we've got a good business in the UK that we need more market share in and we're acquisitive there. Mm -hmm. um, we've got a good start in China and we've just hired on some terrific digital talent and, and David Hunt who we've just brought in uh, formerly of, of Publicis Digital um, <laughs> and who founded AKQA in China. Mm. Uh, we brought in Miranda Sai in Shanghai to run our Shanghai operation out of Fleshman Hillard. Yeah. Um, so we're organically growing and investing there, but um, I wouldn't be surprised to see us um, see if there are acquisition targets there. Mm. Um, in India, we've got a small business that we'll continue to invest behind, but we're also acquisitive in, in India. So we're ac actively shopping in, in India and the United Kingdom right now. So you want to buy? Yeah, we look. We want it. We've got to do both. We don't. We don't. 
we don't have the luxury of having an organic solution or an acquired solution, right? Yeah. We, we, we're going to do both in, in, you know, parallel path because we can't count on our ability to make an acquisition because who knows, right? Right. And how is the acquisition market? It seems very hectic. It's like a deal a week well, at the moment. It, it depends on where you're looking, right? The United Kingdom right now is, uh, is speeding back up again. It was slow. I think they had their slowest period of acquisitions in the 12 months ending uh, June. Oh, okay. They had so the UK slow, was slow. They had a very slow period. Yeah. I think um, Brexit now has made the UK market very attractive for American firms to acquire. Yeah, well, because uh, dollar weak pound. Yeah, yeah. You know, weak pound certainly made it attractive. Mm. Um, I think China. There's not a lot going on there to buy. I think everything's not everything, but a lot of things have been snapped up. Mm -hmm. um, I think India has gone through a period of acquisition. You just saw Dentsu buy um, Perfect. Perfect. Um, yeah. There's not that many good independents left in India. Oh, there are a few around. <laughs> I can assure you there are a few. Um, I know there are a yes. few. Yes. Um, so I think that India has seen some consolidation. Yeah. Uh, I think India will probably see some more consolidation. Mm -hmm. um, but there's, I think, good assets there that, that um, are looking for quality global partners. But back to your original question, we have to have market share in the five markets I just talked about, and we're mm -hmm. going to be focused on that while continuing to build capability uh, on a, let's call it, consistent geographic basis. So you've talked a lot also about, you know, redefining um, Wii's offering. Yeah. And that's something that is is really, you see a lot of firms talking about it, uh, some doing it. I'm interested in, in your views on how difficult that is for, for the big firms to do, um, given the kind of size of their, their legacy structures. Well, look, as you redefine your offer, and I can talk about Wee's offer in great detail, and I will in a second, mm -hmm. um, but look, as you redefine your offer when you're a big agency, your two biggest concerns in doing that is don't alienate your current employee base mm -hmm. and don't alienate your current client base. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when Burson Marsteller went down the perception management route when I was there in the late 90s, um, and said, you know, we want to be the agency of the CEO, they alienated every PR director that was paying their bills across the world, and, mm. and it hurt them. Yeah. So I think, you know, you have to be really careful and understand market dynamics. Mm -hmm. I think it's a little easier um, this time around to build a modern-facing agency because we're all being pushed by the same factors, which are technology, right? Te mm -hmm. Technology and innovation within brands and technology and innovation within the media ecosystem is changing the environment in which our clients live and the environment in, in which we work. Therefore, as we modernize our offer, we're simply keeping pace with or hopefully getting a little bit ahead of the competitive pressures and the media ecosystem in which our clients are operating. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, again, don't alienate your current client base, don't alienate your current employee base, mm -hmm. and, you know, have some benchmarks for how you're going to invest. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my kind of rule of thumb right now with the agency is 7 out of $10 that we're putting into new hires or investments need to be either social-facing or digital-facing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably about the right percentage given where if you just look at what's growing in media and what's shrinking in media, earned, the earned media hole continues to shrink. Social and, and pure play digital continues to grow. Hmm. Interesting. And how do you see um, the challenges for clients, given all of the trends you've just talked about? Yeah. I mean, I, I, look, I think with clients, there's some interesting stuff. In particular, the ongoing debate of where does social live, where does digital live, and what's the role of PR communications. Yeah. And I think you're seeing some clients, like let's stick with Procter and & Gamble and, and Pritchard who have restructured mm -hmm. uh, their brand communications to put PR and product innovation in with the brand teams, mm -hmm. which I think is terrific. 
Yeah. Um, you have other clients that are, I think, increasingly more narrowly narrowly defining communications to be in line with corporate, yeah, legal affairs, right. uh, the CFO mm-hmm. uh, and IR, which I think is um, unfortunate. Yeah, and it doesn't seem to be as common as it once was. Uh, you know, I don't know. If you look at uh, McDonald's, for instance, mm. um, if you look at recent CCO hires, um, yeah. I believe the NFL, with an American example, yeah. I think you're, you're still seeing a split of the top communications jobs going to lawyers and wow. going to communicators. And mm. I think you're seeing a lot of policy chops embedded in those senior comps hires, which isn't wrong. But I think it narrows the view on the modern media ecosystem and really gives more of a let's play defense with our comms yeah, versus let's play offense yeah. with our comms. It which, looks like a, a reactive. Which I think is limiting. I think, I think it's very limiting. Huh. Interesting. And which brands do you think are getting it right? Well, I love what Unilever's doing. Mm. Um, I really love what Unilever is doing top to bottom mm-hmm. in their marketing and their communications and their sustainability efforts and linking that horizontally across their organization and, and having it reflected in their go-to-market, having it be a big part of their investor relations and investor proposition. Um, I've got a lot of time mm-hmm. for what Paul Pullman's doing there yeah. um, and the CMO whose name escapes me at the moment, Keith Weed. Keith Weed. I think, yeah. um, I've got a lot of respect and admiration for what's going on there. I think Starbucks has got it absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Um, I love what they're doing in their content and they have mm-hmm. a fundamental understanding of the value of, of content. You know, mm-hmm. the three parts of it, starting with product and brand value, going to entertainment value and being paid off with social good value. I, I think they fundamentally get that. I think Corey's done a terrific job and has a very innovative you know, uh, CEO in yeah. Howard Schultz. Um, and that, well, they, they have a certain amount of courage. You know, they're willing to take risks, stick their neck out. They are, well, the brand also has tremendous permission to play, right? Yeah. Because okay. they do have you know, purpose at their core that starts with their supply chain and is driven across how they um, uh, interact with and engage their employees all the way down to the store level and how they have the, the store and retail experience engage with the community. So I mean, I think they have tremendous permission to, to play and to innovate. Um, I think Marriott, on? sorry, I think Marriott's doing a terrific job mm. uh, with their content and how they're really matching up communications and marketing communications across multiple platforms and telling real-time stories. Yeah. So, I mean, those are some companies that I see doing a great job. I think our client, Microsoft, mm. and uh, on the back of their CEO, who I think is really shaking up their business, and I think you're seeing a lot of innovation in their communication across business units to tell a bigger brand story, mm. which I think is terrific. How do companies get to that point where they have that permission to play? Well, I think it depends on sector, right? But Mm -hmm. in general, a company has permission to play broadly in content if they are transparent not just about what they do but how they do it, Mm -hmm. right? And I think companies that that realize that um, transparency isn't an option, it's a reality, Mm -hmm. start to operate differently and start to have, instead of a message delivery orientation, they have a dialogue creation orientation. Mm. And those companies very clearly earn the opportunity to have social commentary that is in line with the concerns of their consumers. Mm. Um, And I think the brands I mentioned are all all brands and companies that are doing that. So what's your take on Apple? I'm always curious what people think of them because they're not especially transparent about what they do or how they do it. Um, and yet they, they, they still engender a lot of, of love. Well, just... look, Apple as a brand engenders a lot of love. I think they've got some competitive issues right now. I think Android mm. is making big strides there. Mm. Um, I think the Apple Watch has not given them the lift that they have hoped yeah. to. And I think that, that their communications isn't um, as, let's say, engaging as it could be. I think they still have content that is driven pretty much one way. Mm. Um, it's pretty top-down. Yeah, I think they just sent out their first tweet. 
So, I mean, I think they operate in a top-down kind of in a controlled environment, which is kind of counterintuitive given the level of innovation that runs through that business. Right. Um, and I think there's a um, either a lack of awareness or a highly a high degree of arrogance in uh, what the communications ecosystem looks like today. Now, mm. what they do that I love is the retail experience is brilliant. Mm. And I think they can bake a lot of real-time communication into that, and they can really um, leverage the ubiquity of their products mm. to innovate in their content and content delivery across platform. Yeah. And I suspect that they're going to be driven to do that as their competitive environment tightens. Mm. Uh, I, just, I, think, I think that's going to come. Okay. Um, and so just to finish off, you spent a long time at, uh, at, at, at big agencies, bigger agencies. How are you enjoying the experience of being at a smaller firm? Well, look, I, I love the ability that it gives me to compete both up and down because I'm competitive and it allows you know, me to, to effectively um, get under the skin Mm -hmm. of the big guys and to act a little bit more boutique-y, right? So that, that for me is fun. Mm. Um, I think it's also at a smaller agency, although $100 million is, still gets us in the top 20 or has us in the top 20, I think being yeah. a smaller agency allows us to move a lot faster. Mm -hmm. And it also allows us to compete on price really effectively. So, okay. you know, if we've got a great quality product um, that's an innovative product that we can price effectively and we get those five geos right then uh, I really like our, our ability to consistently win are you allowed to talk about Edelman's race to one billion uh, I wish them all the best um, and I look forward to competing with them every day of the week excellent Alan thank you so much for joining us um, we'll do this again, perhaps, in another city. My pleasure. Look forward to it. For the second segment of this episode of the Echo Chamber, we welcome back to the show Barry Rafferty. So a little bit of Echo Chamber trivia. Uh, Barry was our lead guest on last year's Most Listened to podcast on the topic of women in PR leadership. So it's quite the honor to have her back on the show to revisit this this hugely popular topic. And speaking of women in leadership, since we last had Barry on the show, she herself has been promoted. She's now global president of Ketchum, making her certainly one of the most senior women at a top five PR firm. And interestingly, she's following the same professional trajectory as uh, Ketchum's global CEO, Rob Flaherty. So we'll talk to Barry about her new role um, in just a few minutes, and we'll also dive into some of the progress and continued challenges that the industry uh, faces around gender equality. But first, we're going to start the conversation around ColorCom. As many of you know, ColorCom is the annual conference in Miami that focuses on women of color and communications. So Barry, let's start this conversation just to kind of recap um, some of the key takeaways that you gleaned from this year's ColorCom conference. Well, it was a great experience for me. I think, as you know, I've been a champion for diversity and inclusion in a lot of aspects of our field and certainly had not had the opportunity to speak at ColorCom, which is now in its third year. And I had a few key takeaways. I mean, for one thing, you know, we talk in the industry about women of color and that they're really hard to find on the agency side. But what I will tell you is there was a lot of amazing talent in the room there in all types of positions and all types of levels. And so I think it's really up to us to network, to look in different places and to really think differently. And when I talked to them about recruiting, I had another key takeaway that was really around our job descriptions. You know, we've talked before about women hold themselves to a little bit higher standard. And so when they look at a job description, if they don't have 90 to 100% of the boxes that they can check and say yes to, they won't necessarily apply for the job. For men, actually it's only 60%, which is kind of interesting, right? So when I talked to women of color, some of them said to me, well, you know, you talk a lot about agency experience preferred and certain skill sets that I might not have gotten on the corporate side, so I never even thought about applying to an agency job. So it really made me come back and think about 
How do we write our job descriptions and make sure that we don't put unconscious bias and other things into those job descriptions that keep our pools and applicants even smaller? And my other, I think, big takeaway was around really the emphasis on inclusion. And that although we emphasize certainly being more diverse and recruiting more diverse is how do we make our culture overall continue to make it more inclusive, to have open dialogue, sometimes about the tough subjects that are hard to discuss. And Ketchum, the last few years, we've sent one person from each of our offices in North America to ColorCom. And it was a great chance for me even to just talk to our own colleagues about how we're doing as an agency and some things that we could do better and how we communicate. So it was a great experience and um, really the environment there, if you haven't been, is just they're rah-rah and supporting each other. And um, I left really even more committed to diversity and inclusion than I was before. So I, I want to revisit something you said about the agency job descriptions because I think that's really, really interesting. And in that you know, because I've you know, I think you're, you're you're definitely right, right? I mean, most agency job descriptions ask for agency experience, but if agency experience, if the agency environment already is not diverse, then they're just going to get the same types of candidates. But on the flip side of that, you know, most agencies, when I talk to them, when, when they hire somebody, they basically need them to start like, the, you know, hit the ground running essentially. Um, how so so if you if you remove that preference for agency experience what are some other ways that agencies could make sure that they were hiring somebody who could um you know who would who, who who could do the job essentially well i think two things are happening in the agency environment one is we're hiring more and more senior specialists and those specialists right could be video producers they could be in content crisis counselors real depth of vertical experience as well so we have to look at what are the right jobs and easier jobs, right, for people to enter in and be successful. I think we've had a lot of success in the specialty jobs. But I also think on the corporate side and corporate jobs, what we've learned is it really just takes more onboarding. And I think with senior people, we often thought it would take less onboarding to bring them into our organization. But no matter what, we have to really introduce them, right, to our capabilities, to understand even sometimes, you know, time entry and consulting and what we do. So we've been successful in really changing our onboarding for senior, more diverse candidates to be much more of a mentor holding their hand through the first 90 days and really helping them acclimate. And then, and then what about this sort of 60%, you know, filling in about, you know, fulfilling about 60% of the job requirements versus 80 or 90 for women? Um, I wonder if that extends to the actual hiring process. If, if men, and, and, and I don't know sort of what, what the research says or, or sort of what you, you've seen vary. I mean, do men get more leeway in this regard? For instance, is a, does a man just have to fulfill 60% of the job requirements to seriously be considered, whereas a, a woman would need to fulfill about 80 to 90% of the job requirements to be, to be seriously considered? Like, I, 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 like, like I wonder if it doesn't just stop with the, the application process, but actually follows them all the way through to the hiring process. Well, I wish I could tell you differently. I actually think it even starts on the resume side. There's data that shows if a man and a woman just by their name apply to the same job, the man has a little bit of a step up to start with when they enter through that just first paper trail. But I also think, and I speak to women a lot about swagger. And I say men come in and they just often, whether they have the experience or not, they sell hard and convince you that the three other skills they have make them qualified. Women often are very specific and often you know, more humble and say, well, I don't really have that experience, but. So I think what we have to do as women is also more confidently sell ourselves and sell skills that are similar. The other thing I see too is that women are much more not taking credit for what their team does, right? So my entire team did, whereas men will often take more credit. So I think through the interview process, men are helping, right, those that are interviewing them check the box, whether they've actually done that skill set or not. We tend to give them credit because of the way they promote and pitch their skills. So I do think that at each stage, because they're more confidently saying, I can do the 90%, they come across as more confident. I mean, so some of this is, is, is really sort of a, a, a style difference. And, um, 
And I wonder, as we have more women in leadership positions like yourself, if the agency environment will become more accommodating to to different styles. I mean that you know, you know. Well, I think everybody would agree that women should have you know confidence when walking into a room. Their style of swagger may not be quite the same as a man's, right? And 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 do you think that the agency environment is is becoming more accommodating to, you know, you know, entrusting someone, for instance, with with, with a big job, even if they don't have the whatever the, the so-called traditional masculine swagger? I do, and I think that right confidence can be quiet confidence as well as strong and bold confidence. So I don't want to make it seem like you know you have to be you know out there and really aggressive because I do think there's all types of leadership style. But I also think there's still a lot of unconscious bias that exists, and you know a lot of the agencies and corporations are looking at unconscious bias training. But, you know, we read cues from people all along. Sometimes it could be they don't look like me, right? They speak a different language than I do, you know. But if you have common ground, oh, they went to my college, they grew up in my neighborhood, right? There's different things that create that commonality and create issues. So I think we start there with being more aware of our unconscious bias. There's also, as you look at women in corporations growing up the ladder, you do see a difference in the types of people because they're hiring people and bringing in people, right, that look and feel like them as well, right? So it lifts it up the more women that get up to the top. The one other thing I would also look at in terms of, you know, how you bring in and bring up people in your organization is succession planning and also making sure that that bias doesn't come through in your succession plans. And we often look at particularly in key roles, making sure that there's a diverse set of candidates. So if you have three people in a lineup for succession, we try and say making sure at least one of those is diverse in our own succession plan so that we are making sure that we're shifting the numbers at the top. So, you know, speaking, um, you know, one of the things I think that, 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 that I had heard or I believe that you had mentioned had, had come out of, of Colorcom maybe in a separate conversation, was was this idea of how we think about um, diverse candidates, especially well, especially you know people, the men and women of color, and that's not thinking of them as minorities but emerging majorities. And I guess that that really stuck with me, and I and I wanted to, to kind of get a sense of a little bit more context around that and, and how that was addressed at Colorcom. Yeah, it was great terminology for me to kind of turn right minority on its head with the term emerging majority. But if you think about it. As the population shifts, particularly right in North America, if agencies aren't built to reflect that diversity, and that diversity can be all kinds of backgrounds, right? It can be you grew up in more urban settings, more rural settings. It can be, you know, that you're a big fan of hip hop versus country music. I mean, all of these things, right, are demonstrated in the type of creative, the type of programs that you bring forth the type of you know audience insights that you bring to bear, as well as just the shopper cycle and really understanding that consumer or understanding an issue as well that might you know have a lot of these areas to look at. So I think what we have to think about is as the majority of our population shifts, agencies to be as successful as they need to be on both the corporate side and the creative side really need to have that diversity around the table, coming up with the ideas and counseling clients. And I think you had, you had mentioned um, at one point that that diversity, and it was, I don't, can't remember if this was, this was actually may have been at Cannes actually, um, where, where this idea around diversity extending beyond um, sort of demographic stuff, right? So beyond sort of gender and race and, and really looking at you know, does someone come from a rural area versus an urban environment? Um, various disciplines, uh, and that seemed like that was a, a theme that really emerged at Can this year. It did emerge at Can this year, and I think if you think about right, we're this in this really authentic world where there was a time when you could kind of fake it, and you might do a hip hop campaign, and it was light on hip hop, but now people will call you out, right? If you're in social and you're not relevant or you're kind of off target, you're not gonna get away with it anymore. So a lot of what they talked about at Can was really getting people that understand a deep vertical, right? So if you're doing a program and it's to, you know, adults with no kids, right, to the Dink audience, then 
you know, are you looking at and talking to people that live that lifestyle and understand it so that the work that you're doing is truly relevant to them? And if you're speaking to different audiences, it's just so easy today to get tripped up. So having that diversity around your creative table not only gets to better creative, but really more authentic creative. So speaking of can, um, this you know this year there was there was can and, and I guess and, and diversity and, and, and gender issues. Um, I know there was, uh, was VaynerMedia got a huge amount of, of backlash, as I, as I should have, for having sort of a models-only invite, invite yeah. I can. And it just seemed like there was just one incidence after another this summer in terms of um, gender discrimination, whether it, it was, um, you know, the, the, the executive, um, oh, and of course I am, uh, well, there was, of course, um, the JWT CEO who, yeah. who had to uh, resign. And, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I mean, there was there was you know the W two O group is facing a gender discrimination lawsuit, and then there was the executive, and I forget which holding company it was um, that that actually, had to um, that had to resign because he said essentially that that gender discrimination yeah. was 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 over, and it'll come to me in a moment, I'm sure. Um, I think it was Sachi. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Um, and so. I mean, it, it just, I mean, it was sort of discouraging this summer, right? I mean, we just got hit by one thing after another. The the encouraging thing was that the backlash was swift and there were consequences in pretty much every scenario. So, I mean, just, I just want to get your pulse on sort of, you know, do you think that, not, that you know, these issues are finally now coming to the surface and, and, and we now have enough women in leadership positions that people are comfortable coming forth and that's why um, we're talking about this now, and that's good. It's getting us a step closer to to, to having to sort of reducing um, discrimination overall. Well, I do think, unfortunately, the behavior has been out there for a long time, and I think that you're right. As it's becoming less appropriate now, I think women are stepping out and being more able and feeling more supported in calling it out, right? And bringing it to the forefront and realizing that even culturally our society is going to do something. And I think a few years ago, even, you know, agencies and holding companies and things might've just swept it under the rug, you know, kind of gone quiet for a little bit. And now I think with social media and with women having, particularly in our field, but you saw it around the Olympics and announcers, you know, using kind of remarks that were more sexist this year that, you know, the con the con audience, right, on social is calling you out for it and it's just inappropriate. And to me, I think we've made huge shifts. I saw it at Davos this year where male executives were really front and center talking about pay equity and issues in their own corporations. You know, you saw it in the way I think holding companies and agencies have responded to the behavior that might have used to, you know, might have been condoned in the past saying it's not condoned anymore. We're not going to tolerate it. I think you're seeing it where there's apologies out there when people do make errors and, you know, whether it's announcers or others. So to me, I think that society is shifting and it's a great moment for us to take advantage of that and to make sure that we are changing the culture. And I had a lot of discussion, you know, we had a lot of people at Cannes and that party invite was going around and we all said, you know, forget about even sending our pictures. I mean, none of us are going to put ourselves in that kind of environment anymore. And yes, you know, we're in a social business and I do say to women, you know, don't be the ones that go home, be out there, you know, socially. But I think as you have more women in senior management positions, right, the parties you throw are not necessarily going to have the scantily clad, you know, models serving drinks, or they're going to have a different tone and still be social and fun. And so I'm hoping that we're creating enough awareness to start to shift some of that bias and make sure that, it, you know, we have a more equal playing field, but we're also making women feel more comfortable in pushing back and standing up for themselves. Yeah, no, I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, you, you, you know we've seen, as we just discussed, so many incidents of, of, of gender and discrimination and just outright sexism and, and marketing and, and advertising. You know, but this is also the same industry that like massively celebrated the very empowering like girl message just a year ago. So, I mean, it does seem like there there, there is a shift. I, I don't know, it almost seems a little bit like cognitive dissonance because on one hand, you know, this really, feminist girl power message was was celebrated. On the other hand, you have, you know, all of these um, incidents of sexism happening. It seems, it seems rife with sexism at the same time. 
Yeah, I mean, Madonna Badger and her agency put out a video, and if you watch it, it really showcases the sexism in advertising, and, you know, she's really gone out there in a big way and was um, really followed at Cannes talking about how to eliminate that in your own agencies and what to do and how her agency has, you know, said they won't do any of that kind of work. But then you said, on the other hand, you know, to me, what Like a Girl does so well, though, is point out a lot of our gender bias, right, and things that we're, you know, even in instituting in our own children. And when you see the girls in that and the boys and the difference, um, we have to be cognizant of those things to make change. And I think as we're looking at creating campaigns, at, you know, content that we put out there, we all have a role in hoping that we take out some of that sexism, even some of that sexual harassment and things that, you know, I always often put it through the lens. I have a 17 year old daughter. Is that what I want as a role model for my daughter or my son, to be honest, because I think it's important for both. And if you put things through that lens and you kind of squirm in your chair, then I think we have to as women in communications and hopefully as men in communications kind of say, you know what, doesn't feel appropriate for today. Let's talk a little bit about policies. So Hill and Knowlton has stood out to me for its policies around working parents. For instance, let's take their parental leave policy. For birth mothers, uh, Hill and Knowlton now provides 16 weeks of fully paid leave and 10 weeks of fully paid leave for partners. This is, from what I've seen, unparalleled in the peer industry and on par with some of the most progressive leave policies at U.S. companies. And one of the things I love about this policy is that it shifts the conversation from maternity leave and working mothers to parental leave and working parents across both genders. I mean, because women and men need active, involved, supportive partners to succeed in the workplace. And it's great to see H&K encouraging that. Um, do you think that we'll see more policies like this within the industry? I think you're seeing them across the industry. I think you're seeing them right from country to country now, right? Um, North America and the United States is pretty far behind in general. So, you know, if you looked at most agencies and you looked at their policies in London or in, right, Copenhagen or other countries where they are, there's much more liberal policies. If you look at the United States, it starts, I think, with where you live, right, and then trickles down. But I do think you're starting to see more parity. You're right, even seeing like, you know, our Facebook CEO saying, I'm gonna take paternity leave. It's okay for a senior male in an organization to take it, right? Not only just any male. So I think you're gonna have more male role models because a lot of companies have paternity leave and men don't even take it. So I think that there is more and more, and you know, I hope as an industry, we can continue to lead in flexibility lead in policies and make sure because we are in a woman right dominated field and we also know as you know someone like me that's grown up in this as a mother that you bear a lot of different roles and you know you want to be there for your children you don't want to miss the big recitals and the birthdays and the concerts and things like that and so I think that this industry has been very good for me personally and for a lot of other women in allowing that flexibility and that ability to be role models for others coming up behind us and say, you know what, we're not going to miss the important things. And the great thing about being in an industry like this is we can support each other and be open about it. It's funny, one day I took off and on my out of office, I was getting my daughter ready for school and I I don't even remember exactly what I said, but it was like, you know, mother daughter day out shopping, you know, let me know if you need anything. And so many people said to me, oh, my God, that was so nice that you actually put that. And we're honest because no one ever says that. And they like that. And I think we just have to also, you know, it's OK to take your days off. I literally tell people I never leave a vacation day on the table and they look at me like crazy. And I'm like, guys, you need that time. We give you that time. So it's amazing to me, too, is. A lot of the, even some of the things that we have, being in North America, we don't even feel comfortable taking off some of the, you know, perks and utilizing some of the things that we have. Let's close the conversation by circling back to your promotion and highlighting um, a few other things uh, that have stood out to me around women in leadership. So, of course, you've taken on this global president role, and your Omnicom colleague, Karen Van Bergen, was promoted earlier this year into a new role overseeing all of the PR firms within within the holding group. Um, 
Also, our large agency of the year in North America this year was Conan Wolf, um, which of course is run by um, Donna Emperado uh, as their global CEO. And our overall agency of the year in North America was M Booth, um, which of course was founded by by a woman, Margie Booth, um, but also now has a female CEO, Dale Bornstein, who is of course formerly of Ketchum. So we've we've made a, a lot of progress, but of course there's still no um, female global CEO at any of the top ten firms. So so what's your overall assessment in terms of um, in terms of the future? You know, our global leadership council is now 50-50, and so we're all making progress. But there's more progress to be made, right? We haven't had a top 10 firm yet run by a woman in our, you know, agency um, history yet. There are a lot of females, though, in top corporate communications jobs. And I think the shift is there. I do think we're going to continue to see progress. Yes, are we going to see a few steps back? Maybe so, but I think that all in all, I feel that there's progress being made and that in most of the agencies and most of the corporations now, you're seeing more senior women at the table. And to me, that's a great sign for you know next year and the year after. I also think a lot of the networks and you know in Omnicom, we have Omni Women and WPP and others have a lot of programs now that are putting the focus on helping women rise up the ranks and become more senior leaders in all kinds of areas, whether it's in P&Ls or more female creatives. So the fact that the industry is focused on that and is helping kind of mentor and groom women into more senior roles. I feel confident that we're going to continue to hopefully make two, three, four, five steps forward and very few steps back. Well, uh, this was this always an interesting conversation with you, Barry, and hopefully uh, next time you're on the show, we, you will have uh, broken even more barriers. Well, thank you. I do think, you know, we're all working together to make progress. and. You know, the more we can be inclusive in all of our roles, the more we can mentor, you know, men and women and women of color and males that are diverse and all kinds of things. I think the onus is on all of us to change our industry and to make it happen. And I'm happy to be a champion and um, hopefully a role model for many as well. So I appreciate your reaching out and always enjoy our conversations. Um, in, indeed. Uh, thank you, Barry. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 